On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, Ron Foxcroft joins us to talk about his new book, and Don Robertson is in to talk about Mackenzie Hughes' terrible luck and the Olympics, and no cheering at the Olympics, which may be a little unusual, and a bunch of other stuff. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. My guest is, uh, I would argue he is about the most well-known guy in this entire city. I don't think there's anybody who doesn't know either know him and that's pretty much everybody or know of him. If you, if this, if when I introduce Ron Foxcroft, if you say who, that is probably the surest sign that you are new to this area. I think if we were going to do a citizenship for Hamilton, all you'd have to say as you walk through to see if you were a regular here is say Ron Foxcroft. And if someone says, uh, sorry, you would say, Okay, go back and take your test because you're not really a Hamiltonian. Uh, Ron Foxcroft joins us. He is a businessman, a referee, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, a father, a husband, and now an author, which, Ron, I must say, I'm very disappointed you did this because now I'm sure you've discovered that writing is the easiest thing in the world and you've conquered another world. Well, actually, Scott, you know, the secret to this book and the secret, the lesson that comes out of this book, be a good listener and uh, surround yourself with people smarter than you. So I surrounded myself in this case with Mike Ulmer, uh, who is a a very, very distinguished, experienced writer. Scott, I'm a terrible writer, and I know you're a a terrific writer. Ulmer is also a terrific writer, but he came in. Many people have said to me, Ron, you... um, your business life is is uh, extraordinary. It's uh, diverse, and uh, you're in trucking and warehousing and logistics, uh, search and rescue, safety, whistles, sporting goods, and airports. And um, you've had a lot of experiences. And my answer to that has always been, yes, I've had a lot of experience, and I lead Canada in making mistakes. Mm. But, Scott, one of the lessons in this book is, a mistake is never a mistake if you turn it around, do a pivot, and use it as a learning experience. Can I get you to write that down for me so I can hand that to my boss? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. By the way, Scott, thank you. I don't have to follow uh, Donnie Robertson. Donnie Robertson is coming on after me. He is terrific. And there's an example of, of surrounding yourself with people more talented than you. He's True. my undefeated golf partner. We play against uh, two unnamed city councilors, and we're undefeated. So I've surrounded myself with a lot of talent by joining up with Donnie Robertson. Have, have you always thought you were going to write a book? No, no. As a matter of fact, uh, because I'm a lousy writer and I'm really not that bright and, and I'm, the least, uh, I'm the least most important person in our company, I didn't want to write a book, but Almer came in and did a bait and switch. He said, look, it's time you wrote a book. Describe your experiences because in, in this book, Scott, honestly, uh, for 20 bucks, if the readers get one good nugget out of this book, then the book is a success. So if they take a nugget and apply it to their life, their career, their business, it's a success. And the other thing, the most important thing that uh, Ulmer really thought was a good idea, all the proceeds go to two wonderful charities in Hamilton, Liberty for Youth and City Kids. But no, 
uh, the answer directly, I uh, did not want to write a book until now when Omer did the bait and switch. Mm. You, uh, so the book is called The 40 Ways of the Fox, and there's a reason for that, because it's 40 tips, proverbs, ideas, th- all, things behind, you know, how to be successful in business and in life. And, you know, as I, I, as I heard that, Ron, I thought to myself, okay, you're, you're still in business. You're not retired. You're still working. You're still competing with other people who would want to take your share of the pie in your various businesses. So shouldn't you keep these secrets and these ideas to yourself? It seems almost self-defeating to, if you've stumbled onto something brilliant to give that up to your competition. No, Scott, and I'll tell you why. I get so many people, and by the way, I'm, uh, I'm actually planning my retirement in 25 years, and, <laughs> and Scott, you're invited. I'd like you to speak, but I'd like I'll you be to dead by then. to about 60 <laughs> seconds. Yeah, I'll, but, be, I'll be gone by then, I assure you. <laughs> Scott, um, one of the things that's troubling to me is to say no to people, entrepreneurs, students, business owners, people involved in their career that will call. I don't have a gatekeeper. When you call our company and you ask for Ron, you get Ron. And and I I cherish that. I value that. It's part of our values. Uh, Speak to people, reply to people. So anyway, um, since Fox 40, um, I would get up to 80 inquiries a month from business owners, uh, business people, students, and so on, people involved in their career, uh, you know, and it would go like this. I've got this uh, issue. I've got this problem. Could I spend 30 minutes with you and maybe pick your brain about these ideas? Well, Scott, it's very hard because, you know, in, in trucking and warehousing and logistics, sporting goods, and so on and so on, search and rescue business, we work long hours. And it's very difficult for me to say no when a business owner or an entrepreneur or a student calls and said, look, could I have 30, 40 minutes of your time? I'd like to kick your brain. So I look at this book as a privilege, a responsibility, uh, an opportunity to be a mentor, a coach to all of those people that want to put their big toe into the business world. But there are 40, actually there's 41 things that you've listed here. That is a lot. I mean, surely you can't have followed all of these every day of your life. Can you? Scott, there's no fiction in this book. And, and the one thing, uh, when, when Mike Homer wrote down, I, I did a lot of fact checking. This book probably took about a year and a half. And and I, I want to stress, there's no fiction. Everything in these chapters, 1 to 40 plus 1, 41, um, I've lived. I've lived. And you know what, Scott, as I said earlier in the interview, made a lot of mistakes. And those mistakes were probably the best thing that ever happened to us as a company, uh, myself, as a business career, because, um, as I said earlier in the interview, if you can turn your mistakes into a, a learning experience, I'll tell you, you're going to go a long way. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
give me an example or two examples of, of some of these tips that you would recommend for people. Well, number one, Scott, you know, um, you asked the question, um, uh, do you want to share all your, your ideas because you're still active in business? That is true. I am very active in business. However, at this stage in, in my business career, the greatest thrill I get coming in every single day, and I'm in there every single day, I've never left my day job at Fluke, just in case um, the Fox 40 uh, adventure uh, is a fluke. It's, it's been going for 33 years, but I've never left it. So the greatest thrill I get is coming in and watching my people who are smarter than me at what they do achieve. The other thing, you know, in this book, I don't share any proprietary proprietary information like patents and pen and trademarks and so on. But you know what, Scott, it's a great thrill to have somebody come into my office. We sit down, they say, you know, I've got this situation, and um, what do you think I should do? Invariably, we might have experienced the same situation. They leave, and I just get a great thrill watching them achieve. It's just a wonderful thing, and I'm sure you're in the same situation, Scott, when you have journalists come to you with advice for advice and you share that advice they go away and they're successful it's a really great feeling but just an example of of one of the things that's in this book um a 51 percent deal is not a good deal and and i'm a great believer in the word partnership i don't use that word that term partnership loosely our clients, our customers, our vendors, in, in, in my definition, they are partners. I want our vendors to succeed. I want our customers to succeed. And I'll just give you a real quick example. If I go in and beat up one of my customers for a load and charge them $130 and everybody else in Canada will do it for $100, that's actually a bad deal for me because that customer is going to spend the duration of that contract looking for another carrier. The answer to that is step up, go to the other side of the table, look at how the other person sees the contract, and maybe you should come in at $95 and figure out a way to be innovative and make profit doing it for $95. You're happy making a profit for $95. The customer is happy, and he's not looking for another carrier. So that's why I say a deal has to be 50-50. You have to be equally happy or equally bruised at the end of the deal. Mm. You said a few moments ago, you talked about mistakes. And I mean, uh, I, I agree with the concept. I certainly have learned in my life more from my mistakes than I have from the things that I've done right. Um. But in your list uh, of your 40 things that you've talked about here, 41 things, which one have you screwed up the most often? Oh, hiring people. Uh, you know, I asked my son in the business, what's our greatest competition? And he said, uh, dealing with HR. And you know something, Scott, uh, a big thing in the company, if, if um, somebody doesn't work out, it doesn't necessarily mean they're bad people. It, it probably means that they don't fit the chemistry of your team. And in, in my background in sport, I learned a couple of things very, very early from being in the sport background. A, 
The word team is amazing. There's no I in team, as uh, Angela Mosca always says. And it's important that you realize when you get into your business, you are not going to win alone. You are not going to be successful. You need good people. You need to create an environment for your people to succeed. But I think we've all made mistakes in hiring, but I want to stress, it doesn't mean the person you're hired is a bad person. It just doesn't fit the chemistry of the team. Yeah, and one other thing, we're short on time, unfortunately. One yeah. other thing that I, I think is really uh, intriguing about this is that there, I think, are a lot of people who think that if they're going to write a book, that it has to be a long book. This is this is this surprised me because this is not a long, long book, and I, I, I'm not saying that that doesn't make it a valuable book. It's just it's different from a lot of people would look at doing something like this. It it is Scott. It's available on fox40shop.com. It's about 130 pages in big print, and um, the average person that's smarter than me could probably read the book in about a three hour interval. I, I didn't want it to be long because you know. When you're in business or whatever you're in, if you're a student, life is too busy today. Life is, is very busy today. We don't have enough time for ourselves, and uh, we, we don't have enough time for our families. And, you know, my family has sacrificed more than anything because I was uh, three months behind on my uh, car payment when, when we did Fluke and Fox 40. I carried dimes in my pocket when I was refereeing in the United States to call the office call Marie. And, and so there's a lot of sacrifice for being in business. And that's why I wanted this thing to be a three-hour read. Uh, take one nugget out of it, apply it to your business, your career, invest $20, and the money goes to Liberty for Youth and City Kids. How good is that? It's fantastic. The book is called The 40 Ways of the Fox. Again, you can find it at fox40shop.com. You can... Um you know, if you, if you want to reach out here, I'll redirect you if you forget that by the time the show ends. But uh, we will make sure that uh, if you want to buy a copy, we will make sure that we can find you one somehow. Ron Foxtroff, really appreciate you taking time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. It's my pleasure always. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is Monday and it is 710. And that means it is time to bring in our good friend, Don Robertson, who joins us every Monday at this time. Don, how are you tonight? Good, Scott. How are you? I am well, by the way, for those who don't know, uh, Don is the guy who runs ComChoice Realty and the Dundas Real McCoys and does a variety of other things and is also the 2014 Dundas Citizen of the Year and soon to be the 2021 Dundas Citizen of the Year. We're still working on our campaign to make that happen, but um, don- donors are being sought right now. I don't know if they need donors, but uh, if we can bribe our way in, we will. We'll do whatever we have to do, but there you go. Um, I get, I'm guessing I know what you were doing yesterday afternoon, Don. I was, I was watching part of the implosion, um, watching golf, U S open. Yeah. And, uh, Don, uh, so of course, Don being from Dundas, Mackenzie Hughes, who is also from Dundas, who was leading the U S open after three rounds, had a chance, was in the final grouping, had a chance to win. And Don, I will say this. I talked to Mackenzie today, wrote about it for tomorrow. I don't know. I cannot think of a worse break that anyone has happened in any major that I've ever seen than what happened to McKenzie yesterday. I, I mean, I'm not talking about, there have been bad shots, 
There have been people have had bad shots before. People have had weird bounces. I can't remember a worse break than what he got yesterday. No, he was, uh, you know, and he dropped a couple putts, put himself back into it. He was in and out of it, right? He was um, tied for the lead going into Sunday at five under. Had a, you know, kind of bogeyed the first one, bogeyed two of the first three, I think. And off to a bit of a rocky start, then pulled it back together again. And then it was at the 11th, the par three. Yeah. Hits the cart path, the ball goes up and gets lodged in a tree. Now, I've been playing this game a long time. And I have never seen a ball get stuck in a tree. And I, I've got to be believing if Mac walks up and looks up in a tree and sees it there, you're kind of going, how bad can this day get? And yeah, whether yeah. you get a double or a triple on that one. And, you know, it was just, I mean, there was a, it was a far bigger class, but I'll tell you, you can't be more proud of the guy, right? He, uh, Dundas leading a major top of the leaderboard Sunday afternoon, playing in the final group. I mean, it just doesn't get any more spectacular than that. I don't really care if he shot 110 because he'd accomplished enough to satisfy me. I'll tell you that. Well, I'm pretty sure that if he had shot 110, if he'd shot 110, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't be too happy. No, no. Although he still, although he still would have beat me. (laughs) And, and, and me by, by 30, by the looks of that golf course. It it uh, is just remarkable. It is just remarkable though, Don, when you think that again, so he bogeys three of the first six, puts himself in trouble, then birdies two more and he's one stroke out and as you say, I, I mean, I've I've heard of people getting a ball stuck in a tree. I've never heard of somebody getting a ball stuck in a tree on a bounce, which is just ridiculous. And worst of all, as I say, in the last group on a major with a chance to win the thing, it just, it's so many things. Consp- you, you just wonder, I mean, as he was looking up at the tree, and of course TV cameras are on and it's, you know, lots of jokes and lot, but, but as he's looking up there, like I talked to him today and again, he was pretty calm about it, but you got to think he's looking at this going, really, really me now here, this has to happen now. This couldn't happen in some East Boogaloo open when nobody's watching. It has to be now. Anyway. Or or if he's, even if he's just out playing a fun round, that would be, yeah. You go, okay, I can live with this. This is the U S open. I'm in the final group. My ball's in the bloody tree. Like that, you can't make that stuff up. He he told me today, because I said to him, when did you realize that it was in the tree? Because he couldn't see where it went from the tee box. He saw that it went wide, but he had no idea where it, where it ended up. And so he's walking down towards where it was going to be. And he says, people are saying to him, it's in the tree, it's in the tree. And he's thinking they're either having him on or what they mean is like it's in the debris around the tree, some yeah. fallen leaves, or it's up against the root or something. And he gets there and he goes, no, no, it's, it's, it's really in the tree. Couldn't believe it. If it's, uh, it's in the tree. And I just, you know, I'll, you can say this and, and I mean, it's no comfort to him based on the tournament and where he was and everything else. Someday, maybe, he's going to be able to have a chuckle about it because that thing is going to be on every highlight reel that they ever play at the U.S. Open from now till eternity. Yes, it will be. I, I, I can honestly tell you, I mean, um, 
golf is one of my most enjoyable sports to watch on TV now because I watch guys do what I can't do. But I certainly appreciate their ability. And it's not a team sport. You're out there only playing against yourself. I mean, a line mate, your goalie can't pick you up. Your pitcher can't pick you up. You know, if somebody boots a ball at shortstop, Vladdy can hit one out to make it up. You're out there on your own. And I can't ever remember ever even seeing a ball in a tree. Now, they may have cited examples that, that I missed yesterday, but I mean, talking about unusual and cruel and unusual punishment for just a, you know, a great guy. But, you know, there was a bigger, there was a bigger, uh, well, not a bigger story around here, but uh, Bryson Chambeau was uh, leading after nine, I think, and went like 10 over on the back. Like he... He just, but he didn't get in a tree, though. At least Mac no, had no excuse. So went in a tree. He well, just, and he did it himself. And the, the 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 unfortunate part for Mackenzie, who I, I mean, listen, I think everybody around here was watching and pulling for, was that if that ball doesn't get in the tree, maybe maybe he pars that. At worst, he bogeys that. He's now two strokes out, which is still a, a difficult spot to be in with the field that he was that was in the running with him. But Don, a- after that, it didn't go well. And, you know, even though McKenzie sort of played it down when I talked to him, you have to believe that when that happens, it gets into your head a bit. Like it, it just, it, he's a human being, even though, you know, they say, no, no, I can shake it off. You end up with that kind of thing happen. It's, it's got to get into your cranium a little bit and bug, bug you for the rest of the tournament. Yeah. And there, and there was eight holes left, right? No, seven holes left. Uh, yeah. And yeah, you got to believe, well, one thing you could get your head around is nothing crazier can happen to me than this. (laughs) Probably. That's a small small consequence, right? When you're, you're right. If he's only two back because he had the uncanny ability. I mean, he, he, on Saturday, he eagled a hole, birdied a hole right after that. So he has enough self-confidence that he can pull this off. I mean, I'll tell you one thing about Matt. He does rise to the occasion. I mean, he was in the top 20 last year at the end of the year. And every year he seems to go through these slumps where he misses three, four, five cuts in a row. And next thing you know, he's at the top of the leaderboard the next Sunday. Well, this is a pretty big leaderboard to be at the top of, right? I mean, there was there was a lot of great golfers. that didn't. Phil Mickelson didn't make the cut. And Mac is in the final final group on Sunday. And... You got one on the tree, you're right. I don't think you shake that one off. It's not like missing a four-foot putt. You made, you make a Dundas Valley 100 times when you're 15 years old. You know what I mean? You, those ones you can kind of go, all right, I'll, I'll come back from that. But the one on the tree, I don't know. It's hard to, hard to take your next shot. Well, it, it is. Like, I... I, I think anybody who's ever had not obviously nobody listening, I don't think has ever had, I don't know who's listening, but I would find it hard to believe anybody listening has had an experience like that where they're playing with so much on the line and then something so weird happens. Maybe somebody has, it doesn't have to be sports. It could be, you know, in business or something else. Like you could have had something go completely squirrely, but I just, Don, I just, I don't believe I, we hear athletes and other people, celebrities and whatever talk about how, oh, you know, I can, I can just clear my head right away. I can get rid of it. I can dump it right away. You hear that all the time. A goalie in hockey lets in a bad goal and they say, oh, I can dump it. I I never believe that. 
I know that a lot of them are very calm and they have worked at their stuff. If you have something that crazy happen to you in your life, no matter what it is that affects you negatively, to me, it's impossible that you can completely let that go. It's just impossible. I mean, Marc-Andre Fleury the other night against the Canadians when he whiffs on that stick handling play and lets the Canadians tie the game and then they lose. Marc-Andre Fleury has been in this game for a long, 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 long time and has been excellent, has been one of the best goalies of his generation. You know that for the rest of the game, he was probably thinking about that. Well, let me ask you this. What is Steve Smith famous for? Yeah, for for scoring on his own net for the Edmonton Oilers against the Calgary Flames in the semifinals. That was the year the Calgary Flames won their Stanley Cup, I believe. And he fired off the back of Grant Pure's pass on a clearing play and in the net. And that poor guy, as soon as I said his name, you knew exactly what I was talking about. It would have been nice to see Mac. I think the the other cruel part was he deserved a top 10 finish there. Like he didn't need that, you know, I mean, it's really unfortunate. He certainly played well enough for four days to end up in the top 10. And you're right, that might be proof. He can say, you know, you shake it off, but uh, I don't know. That's a big one to shake off. It and, is a big and, one to shake off. It's it's tough. It's tough. I mean, you can't say it's through no fault of his own because he hit the cart path. But that's that's an unfair result. There are lots of guys. Well, and, and look, he's benefited at times too. I was going to say there's lots of guys who hit the cart path and that doesn't happen. It's one of the flukes of the game. And there have been times for him as for a lot of other guys where you hit an atrocious shot and you get a very fortuitous bounce and it ricochets right onto the green or something like that. Everyone who's played golf for a while has had those as well. So it's not like he's, you know, it's not woe is me. He He's benefited from good bounces too, just like every other golfer. It just was the timing of this one was just like, really now? That would be the moment, you know, a, a lot of other times it could have been, well, oh, well, oh, well. But this you was, know, you know, last group of the U.S. Open. This was a biggie. If you've got everything going for you, it hits the tree about three feet up and comes back on the green. And then you go, now I'm going to win this thing. Yep. Right? Yep. You end up with a birdie out of it and you're going, this could have been a six. I got a two. You know, st- you know, hold my beer and watch the rest of this. I think if I'm Mac... I probably walk up, look out at the tree, and say to the guy beside him, "Give me your beer. I'm going to have a beer and a. I don't even think he smokes. I got a beer and smoke before I take this next shot." <laughs> he may as well I, right up it, and he has a great sense of humor, as you well know. The question I had, he is not so, uh, and I, you know, maybe we can get a rules person on one of these days to answer this question, but he would not be allowed as the golfer to shake the tree or bump the tree or throw something up at the ball. But what happens if a fan did? If a fan chucked his shoe and knocked the ball out of the tree, do they have to put the ball back in the tree? Or is that just... Because if a ball hits a fan who's standing on the sidelines, and even if the fan... We've seen it before with Tiger Woods where a fan has slapped at the ball and knocked it back on the fairway, that's allowed. So maybe Max should have pulled a hundred bucks out of his pocket and said, first guy to whip his shoe and knock my ball out of the tree. Here's a hundred. Well, I remember a tournament and I don't remember which one. It was a rather famous tournament where uh, Tiger Woods hit a ball behind a rock and four guys picked up the rock and moved it. Remember that tournament? 
I don't, a, but I remember. I remember the incident. I don't remember which tournament it was. I don't either, but it was. It was not. You know, it wasn't the Milwaukee Open. I mean, it was a pretty significant tournament, and everybody's going, "Can they do that?" Well, I guess the fans can do whatever they want. I mean, if if you hit it in the crowd and the guy's chairs in the way, he can pick up the chair and move it. So they might have said, "Yeah, well, because that's not a because that's not a natural uh, obstacle. This was a tree is a natural. It's a part of the course." But I do, I do wonder. We got to go to a break. I do wonder if that had been Tiger Woods, whose ball had ended up in the tree, would some fan have knocked it out of there so that he would have been okay? And I don't know. I'll tell you one, I'll tell you one thing: he doesn't have a sponsor on on the front of his shirt. He wins the U.S. Open. He gets to pick who the sponsor is. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, just before the break, we were mentioning that uh, Mackenzie Hughes and Elena Sharp, two Hamilton golfers, will be half of Canada's golf team at the Olympics. But really interesting story today from Tokyo. So they've been having all kinds of problems, obviously, with COVID. Lots of questions about whether the Olympics should go ahead. They're going ahead no matter what because the money is just too enormous to consider not going ahead. But now they're saying no, well, we knew there was going to be no foreign fans. Up to 10,000 domestic fans will be allowed at events, but they must go home right after. So show up and then leave. But the interesting part to me is they say nobody will be allowed to be yelling or screaming in the venues. Is that not going to be the weirdest thing to watch when somebody is doing something spectacular and all you get is a golf like clap. no, no nothing. Yeah. A little golf clap. Well, I I heard that today, and I'm going, really? So how do, how do they go about doing this? And or, or, there's 10,000 people, but why bother? Like, if you're going to let them in, and they can't, they can't yell, they're going to be socially distanced. I, it escapes me. Um, of course, you know, the health, uh, the health doctors in Japan are saying, don't let anybody in. And yet the Olympic uh, Committee have decided they will. It's interesting, actually, who's running the show in Japan. Seemingly, our health table for Canada and Ontario are running ours. And as much as we all want everything opened up, I think, uh, as a side note, Russia had more people die on the weekend of COVID than we've, than we've had since it started. But you're right. When you look at that, I, I mean, kind of what is the point if you're going to let them in, just put uh, cutouts of people there. I is well, money, me. money, selling tickets. I mean, they're they're this these Olympics are yeah. now up to something like twenty seven billion dollars or something like that. It was it started at something like nine, and of course, like every other multi sport games, these things seem to take on a, a completely out of control situation. So between infrastructure and this and that and the other and the security and now COVID testing and space. It's 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 unbelievable, but if you've got to sell some kind of tickets, you got to you got to put a dent in that somehow. And so you're going to tell people show up and don't party, don't hang around, don't socialize, don't cheer. It, it doesn't sound like the most fun th- thing to attend. Quite honestly, it's like going to a wake. It 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 clearly takes some of the enjoyment out of it. Now the interesting thing is, it, talking about this will be the first time ever i'm sure at the olympics where the home athletes will have a distinct advantage because they're the only one with fans there no international fans can attend which except the home so, fans can't cheer for them oh that's true yeah 
No, I, <laughs> I mean, look at, I'm, and, and uh, here's the scary part. You know me, I'm always saying, if you're ever wondering what it is, it's the money. And I miss that part. I guess it is the money. I guess they're selling tickets domestically and they've got to do something. I'm pretty sure they're not going to sell $29 billion worth of tickets though. No, no. But if you can sell 200 million, let's say, I mean, I don't even know if that is a real number. I'm just pulling a number out of the air, but maybe 200 million. I mean, 200 million is 200 million. I mean, it's, well, it's nothing to cut. It's no, it's not close to the total cost, but you know, I don't think you turn up your nose at a couple hundred million either. No, but in fairness to your friend and mine, and I missed the interview because I was working when you had uh, Foxy on earlier about his book, which I'm going to go out and buy this week because it'll be a tremendous book. Foxy uh, refereed the gold medal game in 1976 Olympics in Montreal. And I think I read something about last, just last week, they finally paid off the debt in the 76 Olympics. That was one of the biggest boondoggles in Canadian sports history. I mean, talking about going over budget, and I don't know what the budget would have been. What if it, it would be interesting to see, you can probably Google it because you'll be in front of a computer, of what the cost of the 1976 summer games were, but it was astronomical compared to what it should have been. But you're right, $29 billion. I mean, it's just a crazy amount of money, and what's $200 million do for it? But you may as well have $200 million as nothing. Think about, though, and now I know this is Summer Olympics. I'm not, you know, completely out to lunch, but imagine, for example, the Sidney Crosby Golden Goal in a half-filled arena where nobody was allowed to cheer. How different that would have felt how different that would have played how different the our memory even was because as much as it's a great goal so much of the excitement and atmosphere and and buzz you get energy from the crowd tv is is that you know the rising as a swimmer as they turn in the last turn and they're coming for home the the rising volume in the arena now it's completely silent all you're hearing is the splashing of the water and the commentator it's just it's it's I, I look at this, Don, I think there are going to be people who win gold medals here. And even if they are remarkable performances, they are going to be lost to history because we will not be thinking this is very exciting. They're going to be just buried in the, in the history books. Well, Scott, Scott, we're watching this on a pretty regular basis right now with Stanley Cup playoffs. Vegas are sold out. Uh, I believe Tampa are. I know uh, Long Island sold out. And the Montreal Canadiens are at limited capacity, very limited. So, I mean, we're witnessing it in, in, in real live time right now with Montreal not having to be able to fill the building and everybody else is. I mean, you can see the difference. Now, some might suggest, of course, I'm going to change the commentary here, that the fans can intimidate the officials. Boy, I watched the, the Montreal game the other night, and I would think that there was no fans intimidating those referees, but it'll happen in Vegas. Anyway, does it so, not he, does it not seem though, Don, when you watch the NHL games these days, that it looks like it's a different game when it's in one of those arenas? Though somehow the game seems faster and bigger and stronger and more, everything seems more juicy. Real when you've got that full house there and there's the excitement around it. And the other one seems like, eh, it's okay. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. I mean, it's, I mean, like I said, we're watching it in real time. That's, that's probably what the Olympics are going to look like. 
Like, look, think about the opening and closing ceremonies. I was fortunate enough to be at the closing ceremonies of the, uh, what was it, 86 Calgary Olympics? Not awful, I don't remember, and I was there. I was at the closing ceremonies at, uh, uh, at the stadium, and it was unbelievable. It was full. And you won't see that in the Olympics this year at the start or the finish. The one thing I suppose they could do, the one thing they could do to cover for this, and I don't think they're going to because I don't think they want to spend any more money than they already have, hand everybody an air horn when they walk into the arena. That would be cool. You know what they gave us in Calgary? I think it was a lighter. It wasn't even a light. It was a lighter. (laughs) Everybody was the whole fire up the Bic lighter and there you go. Something to make noise. And they can't do the Vuvuzelas. Remember from South Africa from the World Cup? Because that's blowing air. We don't want people, that's the whole idea. We don't want any air being blown around. uh, Boy, I just, I'm I'm waiting for the signature moment of these Olympics to be done and everybody is, but now here's the thing. Do you, do you believe that there will be no screaming or yelling? Nope. Not for a minute. Not, See, not, that's the no, other part. Wait, let me uh, let me qualify that. If the Japanese win, there's going to be screaming and yelling. If the uh, Croatian team wins or the Canadian team wins, there's not going to be a whole lot of screaming and yelling. But if the Japanese win, you'll you'll see screaming and yelling. I think without I, I I think you're probably bang on. I think there are all there's always a couple events that become so exciting that it's almost impossible. Not to, but you're right. I, I I think that's probably very fair that for most of it, they can sit on their hands. But if, yeah, if, if some Japanese athlete is suddenly about to win a gold medal, I don't know, may, maybe, maybe the Japanese people will follow the rules. I, I don't think it would happen here. Sure. Wouldn't happen in the States. Wouldn't happen in most places. Maybe they will there, but to, to stay silent, but I just, I, I don't know. We'll, we will see. The only place that'll happen is North Korea. Otherwise, they're all, yeah. um, well, well, yeah, but in North Korea, they would have snipers ready to ch- shoot anybody who's cheered. That's uh, it's a slightly different story. You know, um, what anyway, let's... Poetic, you know what would be poetic justice? I know, I assume you got to go to a break. Um, is if uh, Mackenzie Hughes wins a gold medal in golf and does it by bouncing one off a tree onto the green that then rolls into the cup. You're a grassy old guy. Yep, that'd be perfect. No, I'm just a I'm just a glass half full optimist. Like always, I'm the bluebird of happiness, Don. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, there was a Supreme Court ruling in the states that has determined uh, it was with the NCAA. It was against the NCAA. Uh, college sports in the states that it doesn't say that schools can pay their athletes yet although that lawsuit is still working its way through the courts but it says that schools there is no limit to what schools can give their athletes provided it can somehow be connected to their education so i suppose you you could get very clever here i mean you could say computers or whatever else but you could theoretically i guess you, you could I don't know. Could you give them a house and say it's so that they can live near campus? I don't know how far you can go with this, but this is certainly taking us down a path towards what seems like now an inevitability that the Supreme Court of the States is going to say athletes and university sports can be paid. Is that a good thing? I don't think there's much change. 
Well, yeah, some some would say it's been happening already. That's what I meant. There there would be many that would suggest that the elite athletes have always been induced. So now what I think they're saying is we know what's going on, and I wasn't there, but clever enough to sort it out, I think. I wasn't there, but no longer are we going to give the parents the inducement. We'll give it directly to the athlete. There isn't a chance in anything, short of swearing here, that parents and players have not been induced a great deal to go to one university or another. I think what they're trying to do likely is say, all right, let's clean this thing up and acknowledge what's going on. Right. I mean, really? I mean, Bo Jackson, OJ Simpson, uh, dating myself, uh, all the, uh, all the premier athletes, you think they weren't induced to go to one university or another or their or their parents were the OHL have been Me? doing it for years. The OHL have been doing it for years. They say they don't pay their players and they don't pay their players. They give them a per diem, but to go to an OHL team, lots of teams will say, you know, we can't pay your player. We can't pay your son, but here's what we'll do. You can have four tickets to every road game and we'll give you hotel accommodations for every road game every home game because your son doesn't live close. We're going to put you up at, at, at the Suites Hotel. So it's always been going on. I think they're just trying to clarify it and perhaps bring more transparency to what's been going on for years. Uh, I, I mean, but that transparency though, and if all that's the case, that transparency though, if you can now not have to hide it, but it's right out in the open, it will increase the amount of money that's going to be paid to these athletes dramatically, whether it's direct compensation or through these other ways. And Don, I, I look at this and I think um, it's, it's always been my point of view that if you go to a university on a scholarship, you're, you are essentially um, you're, you're learning what do you call it? You're um, uh, as if you were a plumber um, learning on the fly, you're uh, I can't think of the word. Apprentice, thank you. You're apprenticing for your future professional sports career and you're being paid already by the scholarship money and whatever else. And I look at this and I think this is this is going to kill not only university sports as far because now you're going to have, let's say in football, you're going to have six schools, seven schools that are going to be just able to buy all the top players. And there's only going to be a handful of schools that will ever be able to win and same in basketball. And same in every other sport and more of a problem. You're now going to have many, I think a lot more Canadian universities losing out on kids because look, if, if, even if you're not going to get a big, big payday, if, if a guy who might've come to Mac or gone to Western or something could go even to a division two school and they'll say, we'll pay you something. A lot of kids will say, yeah, that's pretty good. And I don't see Canadian schools planning to do this anytime soon. So I, I, I look at this right now and I think this is a, I, I don't agree with the concept. I think you are being covered already. I think you're getting your scholarship. You're being paid. You shouldn't be paid more. If you're one of these superstars who is going to go on and make millions and millions and millions in your pro career, it's not a big deal. You can live without this. And here's the other thing. And this is the part that gets complicated. Most 
or at least a lot of the money that these universities are making through athletics that they're bringing in that aren't going to the players, but they're going to other facilities, libraries, and other things on the university campus that otherwise they could never afford. So well, it is helping there's, academically. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I don't disagree with a lot of your comments, but one of the things that that everybody, I think, knows is that Michigan State, or pick the university you want, their basketball program, by virtue of doing what they do, funds badminton, volleyball, and everything yep. else, the less attended sports. So it does at golf. It, it, it probably funds a lot of those things. But you really got to be naive to think that those elite athletes, I agree with you 100%. If you're, that, if you're Michael Jordan, you're going to be rich someday anyway. A free university education doesn't mean a whole hell of a lot to you. But the, the reality is it's been going on and on for years. And I think what they probably are thinking is, why don't we just acknowledge it? And why don't we just let it happen? Because everybody knows it's happening. You're not fooling one post. Like I mean, yeah. it, it's been yeah. going on. So I, I don't know what changes. I don't know if it changes anything for the university. Uh, uh, it allows in, the totals to Canada. be bigger. It potentially allows the amounts to be a lot bigger because you're no longer having to hide it and bury it. And, and Don, one idea that I've had before that I would be okay with, even though it kind of goes against what I just said, and I don't like the idea. If every player, if you said at the end of your university career, here's how much every player is going to get, except for the ones that go on and sign a pro contract. If you sign a pro contract and therefore you're making money in the sport, you are then being looked after. You have used this as a, as a launch pad to a pro career. We have, we have created the opportunity for you to get that. If you're the guy who doesn't, here's a hundred grand at the end of your university career because you contributed to the sports and bringing in money. And therefore we're going to hand you a check for a hundred grand and off you go and get started on your life. I'd be okay with that. I'm going to give you two examples. I, I signed a kid when I was running the Brantford Smoke, the minor pro team at Brantford. And uh, John Baduk was his name. And he came in from Western Canada. We flew him in. And uh, that was a pretty big investment in 1991 for us to, you know, be flying anybody in. And he came in the, the day of the game opener and said, I don't know if I want to play. I went, Why? Because I, I lose all of my Western Hockey League uh, opportunity to go to school. So he didn't want to play the game. <clears throat> he ended up playing four or five games, went on and had a minor pro career. But the point is he would have lost all that. Another example is I brought a, I brought a Brantford kid back who played for us for, when we won the colonial cup. He wasn't, uh, wasn't all that interested in school, but had a scholarship and was going down there off his, um, OHL, uh, scholarship thing. And but the university paid him, and I tried to bring him back and was going to pay him uh, 350 bucks a week. This 1991 or no 1992, and he said, "You got to pay me more if I'm going to come home." He said, "Why? That's how much I'm making playing university hockey out here." He was uh, he was being paid as a janitor for the cafeteria, and all he'd ever done in the cafeteria was eat. So the Canadian universities are not all that squeaky clean. And I had to pay him 50 bucks a week more just to pay him what he was getting paid to play university hockey in the East Coast. 
So it's a fascinating story. Been, what's that? Yeah, no. No, I'm just saying it's a fast that we got to run. It's a fascinating story because this is the first step. And I think we're going to find in the next year or two that the Supreme Court of the States is going to give the NCAA or give the athletes free reign to be paid. And then, as I say, the March Madness, dead. Because now you're going to have just a handful of schools that can compete. And football, dead. And, and as you pointed out, and I think very rightly, Don, um, a lot of those lesser sports are going to be now struggling because they don't have the money to coming in the same way. I'm not arguing, look, I, for those who are listening, I'm not arguing that universities don't bring in a whack of dough from sports. They do, but they generally go to other things as well. It's not just a profit center. It's being reinvested most of the time. And so we'll see where this goes, but I, I, I don't see it going to a good, I, I don't see it ending well. That's all. Anyway, we will pick that up another time. Don Robertson, always appreciate you doing this. Thanks for the time tonight. Thanks, Scott. Enjoy your day. Bye-bye. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.